The Psychedologist. Karen Kiefer, my dear friend and colleague, comes on the podcast today to talk about consciousness and her journey with cancer. She is a trauma therapist, trainer, and integration coach, as well as mom, sister, daughter, friend, plant mom, and cancer egghead. She has lived in Massachusetts for over 30 years, but may soon become a nomad. In this episode, What is Reality? Karen discusses out-of-body experiences, pleasure activism, and how culture shapes us. Karen mentions her path to social work, the experience of being disabled by depression, peer support, becoming trauma-informed, becoming a therapist, and her present work. She shares about open dialogue, a systems approach to mental health and working with families. A theme of this conversation is supporting others by being human. Karen has also helped white people understand why issues of race can be so hard for us. We discuss somatics, complexity, resilient movements, and psychedelics. Welcome to The Psychedologist, Karen. Thank you very much. Good to have you here. So let's start off as we always do. What was your relationship to consciousness as a child? Hmm. Well, certainly not a word that I knew about, but as a kid, I did um, grow up in the 60s as a young child, and all kinds of things were happening around consciousness among adults around me. And so I think some of those ways of um, thinking about things soaked into me in, in ways that I didn't know or understand until later. Um, and I was a kid who loved to be outside in the woods. And so that was a pretty magical place for me. Um, and the younger you are, maybe, maybe we grow out of this young, young child thing of feeling like you're part of everything around you just naturally. And over time we lose that. So that magical quality of being in nature was very important to me, uh, and I also had, as a, as a child, still in inter- elementary school, up through high school, I had night terrors, which I didn't really know what they were. Um, and it was like being sucked into something evil. That's how it felt to me. And so there was, there was always this menacing thing about not being in control. Um that came along with those experiences. And um, just thinking about this now in response to your question, um, about how all of those things have have influenced how I think about this word, right, of what consciousness is, because um, during the night terrors, I was paralyzed, but and I was terrified, but I... I knew what was going on. I, you know, I hadn't lost consciousness physiologically, but I was paralyzed, and um, and that that was a really important experience um, for for several years. So it was kind of um, this feeling of that I knew what evil things were like somehow. Um, 
and having come from a religious family but not feeling religious, I thought about these things as a child about what what does spiritual mean and um but uh basically my my universe of consciousness has been nature i think um when i was in my early 20s i had this experience it was a full body experience of of sitting behind home plate in um baseball diamond near where i was living I was sitting on the hill there, and all of a sudden, I was whooshing through the galaxy at light speed. And if I didn't grab my mother's hand, we were going to be lost to each other. I don't know how much time elapsed um, in that thing, and I did not feel like I was dreaming. Um, it was a really interesting experience that um, puzzled me for a long time. And so I remember researching out-of-body experiences. And at the time, I was living in Boston, where um, a psychiatrist named John Mack was working with people with out-of-body experiences. And uh, I took a, a survey or something. Anyway, I went to a support group for people with, with out-of-body experiences and everyone there had the experience of that I did not resonate with of being abducted by aliens. So I found myself in a support group of people who've been abducted by aliens. And I just that was not my experience. And but it was really interesting to be in the midst of that and feel feel how real it was for other people. And um just struggling with this, what what in terms of the the consciousness word. Is it well, this is an internal experience for them, an external experience? Like, what is reality? And um, because it was clearly very real for them. Um, and so I think the out-of-body experience, that's when I started thinking more specifically about consciousness and what that means and what is my experience of it. Wow. So interesting. It's making me think of the hearing voices support groups. I know you've facilitated before. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about that? I have not facilitated them before. Um, I have supported the development of them ah. and their their existence in certain um, public mental health system spaces. And I've used some of the ideas in my work with people in therapy. Um. And I find it compatible with a lot of other things, but but it's that same character of trying to understand people's experience or at least provide a space where they can be in dialogue with their experience and understand it better. Um, I'm not sure we ever really understand somebody else's experiences, but um, but being exposed to the different ways that people do experience and think about their experiences of that is... is um, um, fascinating on one hand and, and can be harrowing on the other to, you know, sit with people, um, trying to make sense of these experiences for themselves. Yeah, uh, I, you might relate. Well, actually you might not relate. We shall see. But when I 
studied psychology in high school and undergrad and grad school. Uh, there was just no other viewpoint presented apart from one that pathologized all, you know, any, any diversity of mental or emotional experience, really. And I just remember being so blown away when I read a study of that, you know, people who hear voices in Western countries, I think it definitely was the United States, maybe Canada, and I think some met another country in Europe, perhaps. The voices were um, menacing and shaming and just like really unfriendly voices. But people who they surveyed in Nigeria, the voices they heard were akin to like a, a caring auntie or some sort of grandparent or ancestor, and they were benevolent. They felt benevolent. Just like so interesting. And, and I, you know, I'm grateful that support groups like Hearing Voices exist. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so, I'm so heartbroken over the way different mental experiences are pathologized. Right. Well, it relates to how, how useful they are to being productive, right? And if it, it takes you out of productivity, then it should not be allowed um, in our culture. And um, the more that I, um, I guess, live and learn and do work with people, the more um, it's impressed upon me that it's so common to think of culture as, oh, I eat different foods or I dress differently. I have different holidays and a different religion or something like that. But culture shapes us so deeply in all of these ways um, that, you know, it influences the development of our physiology. Wow. Um, so that's one thing that has really impressed me about um it's not just a different interpretation of experiences. It's maybe different experiences, right? Yeah. And so tell me about your pathway into social work. How did you end up in that field? <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's a long trail, I guess. Um, I, um, Social justice work has been important to me for a long time. Um, and I, I studied environmental policy and I was doing different policy work um, before I became disabled by depression. And so I, um, for about 12 years, I didn't do, I didn't work. And then when I tried to come back to work, I couldn't go back in my field, um, which was climate change. Uh, stuff because so much was happening I couldn't make up I couldn't catch up 12 years of what was going on in the field I I couldn't even get a volunteer job in my field um then I um tried to get a temp job doing administrative stuff that I was good at I couldn't even get a temp job and so um because I had I had done the the math of what what kind of salary do I need to make to be able to get off of disability? Um, it's quite a challenging thing to do. And so I said, well, I could be an executive assistant. So again, I couldn't get a job. And so I got a volunteer job as an executive assistant for um, one of the directors of, the, of a recovery learning community in Boston. And I didn't know what that was. Um, 
Uh, I was not that interested in mental health work. It's not um, in all my years of um, of different mental health stuff going on. I I hadn't really found any help or answers in the in the mental health services. So so it was a really interesting place for me to land and. Um, I was encouraged to become a certified peer specialist. And then I tried finding work in that field. And if anybody knows about that, it's, it, it's not a field where you can make the kind of money that I wanted to make to get off disability. But anyway, um, that's how I came into the mental health world, um, was through that volunteer job. And in organizing, um, the director's amazing amount of resources. I learned all about this history of of advocacy and social justice and mental health and um, self-help and peer support and all these things I'd never heard of before. So I learned a tremendous amount just from organizing those resources. And so I got more involved in that work and I, I went on to work for another recovery learning community in Massachusetts which those there are five of them in Massachusetts, and they are organized. They're supported by the Department of Mental Health to provide peer support, all kinds of different kinds of peer support um, for people with mental health diagnoses. And so from there, um, I uh, went to work for DME, doing setting up peer support services and. Um, and doing system change work within DMA. So, um, so that's how I came to the mental health field. And then working at DMH, it became very clear that the system wasn't very good at, at working with trauma, um, clinically or, um, being trauma informed. And so I spent a good deal of my time during those years of um, doing training and supporting change um, towards a more trauma-informed system because um, it seemed like uh, there wasn't even room really in the DSM for understanding how people's life experiences turned into what are called symptoms and mental health conditions. So, uh, So in learning of course, about all these things for myself as well of, of trying to learn about things that are helpful systemically and in, in the mental health system, but also for myself. I learned a lot about somatic therapies and trauma and trauma theory. And so I decided to go back to school to be able to do some of that work directly, um, finding it helpful for myself. And it just made everything make so much sense to me about what was happening to people um and and it gave some directions of how to support people so i went back to school i chose social work um and uh and i became a therapist i'm reflecting as i listen to your story on my own um learning about myself while studying psychology and mm. um, like 
I had a thought of like, you know, does anyone study psychology without thinking about themselves? And like, if someone no. didn't think about themselves, that would be concerning. Yeah, they don't. Um, so before I ever thought about becoming a clinician, I spent two years studying open dialogue, which is a family systems um, approach to work with family in family therapy. Um, and it was the first time this training had been offered in the United States. So, um, so I spent two years learning about this really different way of approaching um, whatever we call mental health and working with families, providing more space and more um, autonomy for people, more decision-making in how this therapy went. And um, and it was hard for some of the clinicians in that training to unlearn some of what they already did. Um, but it really provided a foundation for me of um, really helpful and caring approaches, human human approaches to um, supporting people in a whole different way that didn't pathologize them. And um, that model is, is famous for people thinking that no medications are used and things like that. But medications were used just enough whole different context and for different purposes. So it's not an anti-medication model, but it was very different way of thinking from, from our traditional mental health system ways of thinking. And so I was exposed to that before I was exposed to being trained in more, more traditional U.S. mental health care ideas in school as, and in different trainings um, to be a clinician. So I'm really thankful that that was that those things happen in that order for me because that that was a pretty amazing amazing opportunity that I had at that time. Do you think that you'll always support people as a therapist or I mean it just seems like in in many different contexts you've been a support for others and I wonder if that feels like your forever thing. I'm really fascinated by the whole subject of agency, of inhabiting the self that can use self-knowing and learning and experiences as a basis for making good decisions. Um, I think this is both a practical subject as well as a philosophical one, and it shows up in both integration work and therapy. Um, I have a really awkward analogy to try to articulate the difference. Let's see if you can follow it. I developed and facilitated all kinds of workshops over the years, and I also got to teach master's students last year. I think coaching is more like workshops or trainings in that what people get out of training is more individual, and they decide what they've learned from it, which is ideally true about therapy too. But due to the legal responsibilities and risk management requirements for evidence-based treatments, it's more difficult to keep it real. So therapy can feel more like formal education sometimes where there's a curriculum and certain tasks or processes that have to be done. At the end of a class, you get a grade 
based on specific things you were supposed to learn. And that's not to say that people don't have experiences personal growth in formal education, because they absolutely do. Just that they're graded on how they show their learning about very specific topics that they may or may not care about. And personal growth doesn't matter for their grades. In therapy, I find I have to steer more. And I am the one who's supposed to interpret a person's progress, kind of like giving them grades in terms of the specific symptoms they came into therapy with. In coaching, the meaning of what we do and what constitutes progress is defined much more by the person and they decide their grade. So I think of coaching as more like a, a workshop and therapy is more like formal education. Um, it's kind of like, this is not a great analogy, but I love um, training people and doing um, that work. Uh, and then when I taught in a graduate program in a university, there's so many similar elements, but it's really different um, because you're giving people grades, you're judging their progress, you have all these um, policies and ways of doing things that don't really go along with necessarily learning principles um, and autonomy that, that we like for people. So it's kind of like that. Um, therapy, the way we have it, it gives a lot of responsibility and power to the therapist that is not always comfortable for me. Um, legal responsibilities that, that um, are hard to hold and that are, are pretty stressful. Um, I really enjoy um, the training piece and... But now doing integration coaching is what I'm um, doing more of now since I'm not doing therapy. Um, I love that for the same reasons. It, it feels more human, more directed by the person who are seeking out, you know, these experiences and supporting them to, to gain you know, whatever insight they're looking for and skills and do things for themselves in a way that doesn't put me in the position of being responsible for this process. I couldn't be responsible for if I tried, but I, you know, I'm not trying to do that. And I love supporting that work. I really love it. Um, you know, some of the same things that happen in therapy that I love about therapy you know, people are in this really vulnerable situation and they're showing you really important parts of themselves. And even when they're difficult, it's just, you just see how beautiful people are, and how much they're, how hard they're working and um, what they're struggling with, what life has done to them. And I just find it such a privilege to sit with people and in their vulnerability um, and um, it, it's really impressive and beautiful work. And I get that from both therapy and integration coaching. Um, so I'm finding I'm more satisfied with the coaching work um, because it doesn't have a bunch of the downsides and it has has that that character of really being present for the beautiful things that people are. 
I know you've also done some anti-racism work and training. Can you speak to that? Um, I don't do anti-racism work. Um, but what I do is I take some of the things that I've learned about what is helpful for people in therapy um, and apply it to helping white people understand why issues of race are so hard for us and what whiteness does to us as humans and and where we can um, start an internal process of, of looking at whiteness in ourselves. So it's more opening the door to people um, having a relationship with that internal conversation so that they can go out in the world and not be defensive and reactive and really take advantage of opportunities for dialogue and action with other people um, and not just stay stuck in this bubble of whiteness, um, but open up to all the things that that can happen out there that are really amazing and powerful when we step out of our bubble of whiteness. Um, so... I've done um, uh, a course for um, white people to, you know, learn learn what to do with that discomfort of of dealing with issues of race and um, how to feel stronger and more grounded in it, so that it's not so scary and we can go out and interact with the rest of the world and 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 um, let it change us and 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 um, be a force for change uh, in the world. Wow. Yeah. Is there uh, any little tidbit that you could share as to, you know, for any white folks who are listening, how to, um, yeah, become more comfortable engaging with race, talking about race? I think we especially the more progressive we think we are, the more we defend against any trace of whiteness in us, like that, that we can't possibly be, um, have any racism in us. And that, that denial that it's in us, I think is, is where people get caught up. Um, so it's more of learning to see where it is in us and what we want to do with that. Um, but it takes it takes courage and it takes some skill to see where how racism moves through us, right? We didn't create it. We don't want it. We don't want it to be part of us. Um, but it does move through us and we can't help that. And it's not necessarily our fault until we become conscious of it. Then, then it's our responsibility. So I think um, so often I've heard from all kinds of other communities um, you know, sit with the discomfort of this and learn about this and just like, just do it. And it's impossible to just do it. You know, sitting with discomfort takes a lot of self-awareness and, and skills that you can actually learn. So those are some of the things I want to help people gain that skill for being able to hold those things. Cause it's really hard. Um, but while we're still in that personal reactive space, nothing, we can't, hardly get out of our own way um so i think it's that um that understanding that it's 
it's if you grew up as a white person in the country, it's in us. <laughs> and if we don't want it to operate in us, we, we have to gain some skill to to hold that process of looking at it. Right. Yeah. A prior guest, Phoenix Grace, named it as the trauma of the oppressor and having to heal. Absolutely. Heal yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we have a long, a long history, a European history of of trauma being traumatized and you know when you're in that that power dynamic it's always a struggle for power um if you're the oppressed you're always trying to um gain some power and autonomy but um but we carry we carry all that trauma you know um resma menicum has my grandmother's hands that book if if you're familiar with it but he addresses, you know, how how white people, black people in the U.S., and police officers. So these three groups of people, and of course, police officers have both and more, right? Um, uh, of black and white people, and lots of other kinds of people being police officers, but they have a specific kind of experience that that they need to navigate. And so speaking about the somatic pieces of of how we those groups of people deal with oppression and power and looking at that in a somatic way, I think that's a really great book that helps people who are descended from Europeans to understand how how it moves through us. Yeah. Yeah. I am, yeah, I'm wondering if a somatic lens is ever not called for. It just seems to make everything so real. Well, that's where real life is, right? The, re- the rest is it all in our confused mind. <laughs> I, ha- I have a confused mind. Everyone does. That's what minds are. Minds are just confused by nature. There's so much going on up there that's hard to sift through, you know? <laughs> and especially when only some small percentage of the information that we're taking in is consciously aware, we're consciously aware of. Oh, yeah. It's just unbelievably complex. It is not complicated. It's unbelievably complex. I once heard that a human being is the most complex thing in the universe. And I forget how, how they came to that. But, but I thought, well, just put more than one of them together. And, <laughs> and that's, you know, like how, how much more exponentially complex is that? So if you're into complexity theory and stuff like that, um, that's pretty interesting to think that of how complex we are and how many systems and channels we have running in us. That's why it'll be keep us occupied forever as humans to figure ourselves out. <laughs> so you said earlier that um, you were disabled by depression and unable to work for twelve years, and now you're you're working and you're dealing with cancer. And you even mentioned to me that so far depression is a lot harder than cancer. Can you speak on that? 
Yeah, that was um, a really heavy feeling I had right when I was diagnosed um, with cancer. Um, that's been about, I don't know, uh, almost two months ago now. So I'm, I'm still in the beginning stages of that journey. Um, but what I experienced when I told people my diagnosis was this overwhelming outpouring of support um, of all kinds. And, and I just had this sense like, wow, um, if I had had this for depression, or, or anybody did, that the suicide rate would plummet. Um, but it's hard with depression because um, the help doesn't necessarily resolve problems. And I think humans are such helpers um, that if, if we can't help, we don't know what to do. And so with depression, I think it's really hard for other people to know what to do. It's a hard experience to understand. And even when I'm not feeling it, I myself don't even understand my own experience. Like, how is it possible? Well, can't you just do this? You know, I think that of my own self. Um, so I understand how other people get frustrated. Well, why don't you just do the one obvious thing that's going to help you? Um, so it's really, I think, a difficult thing to understand what what keeps people from doing the obvious things that would be helpful. Um, and I, I don't know that myself. <laughs> like, just understanding my own experience in that way, I, I, you know, it's really challenging to get in that space when I'm not in it. And so over decades, that's going to frustrate your friends and family. They don't know what to do. Nothing helps. And they're sick of hearing the same thing over and over again. So it's just, I, it just seems natural that people would get tired of trying to help you. Obviously, their efforts aren't doing anything because your experience doesn't seem to be changing. Hmm. So that's a really frustrating thing. Um, and so, yeah, they show up for you if you go to the hospital or whatever and have some difficult moment. Um, but then I think it, that, I think even for therapists, depression can be really frustrating for therapists, you know. Um, and and that was such a stark contrast with being diagnosed with cancer because everyone can imagine, um, you know, like you're physically miserable, you're confronting this, you know, your potential death and and all that, and and you need food and you need company, you need a ride, you need all kinds of different things that people know what to do for you that I think aren't so obvious with depression. So, but what I found was that you know, just people being there, um, reminding you that they love you and support you and they're there for whatever. Um, that's so powerful. And, and the way, you know, my whole community from people I've known my whole life from every place I've ever worked or lived or gone to school, um, just mobilizing. Um, I just felt so held and cared for in a way that I, I didn't with depression. I mean, it's so, such an isolating experience. So that, that really struck me. Um, yeah. So that, that felt like, I don't know why it felt like a realization. Um, but, um, but it seems like it doesn't, it doesn't happen for, you know, 
depression in the way that it does for other things. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry for you going through either of those things. I mean, I'm thinking about this curandero that I spoke with recently who said that if he comes into medicine space or any sort of consultation, any any exchange with someone who's there to you know, receive, I don't even know if it's to receive healing, just like someone who's coming to him for help. Um, and he says when he comes with anything other than neutrality, he's weakening his medicine and that the potency of his medicine is directly related to his neutrality, as in not wanting any specific thing for them apart from healing and, you know, love, just the, the right, yeah, the force of love. So it's, it's making me think a bit about that with the whole, yeah, with depression, people, you know, maybe if they could just come with neutrality and like, this is, um, so what? Okay, so what if you don't get better? Like, I'm still going to bring you a fruit basket and come sit on the couch with you or something. Exactly. It's enough. I, I think, yeah, the presence is, because what presence does is say you're, you're a person who, who's valuable. It doesn't matter if you're working. It doesn't matter what you're producing or achieving in this moment, right? You're just valuable just because you are, right? And that's kind of what love is, too, in lots of ways. Um, that's a tricky word. Um, it means so many important things. Um, and it's kind of like being with the moment. It's like acceptance. It, it's a whole um, just being present, like that, that, like you said, is enough. But for we're such relational beings that... Um, that's like a nutrient that we need. Yeah. I think so many folks are, are nutrient deficient. Like we have a whole culture that is, that is, you know, about that, um, about independent, um, and about productivity, right? No, nothing else really matters. Um. And no other people matter, uh, just, you know, in terms of, you know, general cultural values. Um, you earn more, you're more important, you know, you have lots more power and, and um, opportunities in the world, a lot of more respect. Um, yeah, lots of people really struggle with, if I'm not working, um, I don't deserve anything. Yeah. Rest is resistance. And it's like, I'm not a person. Yes, absolutely. But also, if I don't achieve anything, I'm not a person. Like, I don't even exist. Right? I I don't, I can't be seen, I can't be heard. Um, Which is such an important thing to happen for anybody having a difficult experience, right? To be seen and heard. I just think about the pandemic and, and like this whole period of isolation that people have been in. Um, working through the pandemic as a therapist, uh, the overwhelming uh, lack of that nutrient of togetherness and care and the fear, at, so much was uncertain and that isolation. Um, 
it was an amazing amount of anxiety. And, you know, we're all holding it. As a therapist, I'm holding that as well, right? But um, I've never seen, it was like a tidal wave of anxiety, a basic existential angst. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I felt it at times. And also the pandemic was part of me learning to rest. You know, the, it, my learning to rest coincided with this pandemic and, you know, permission to say no to going out and gathering has been radical. And how many memes were there about that of, of finally introvert and, and relax, you know, so many memes around that which I think really speaks to this pressure to produce all the time and be active and busy and do all these things. A lot of pressure for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, this idea of pleasure activism. You know, Adrienne Marie Brown wrote that amazing book. And um, just thinking back to your days in the climate justice fight, um, first of all, I'm like wondering if, your depression could have was like in some way worsened by that. And also I'm thinking about just one of the nuggets I got from that book was that our social movements will be much more resilient and profound and deep and multifaceted and like powerful um, if we incorporate pleasure. Absolutely. Because we have to live through, these are not short-term movements. We have to live and construct new ways of people thriving. And we have to do it in real time while while the plane is, while we're flying the plane, we're building the plane and the plane's on fire, right? And it's flying over a typhoon and a wildfire and an earthquake. Like, it's everything. I think um, what really, you know, the the early 90s were were very hard for me because um, we were working towards the 1992 meeting in Rio, one of the first global meetings, right, to to talk about action for climate change at the international level level in a cooperative way. And there was so much hope put on this one meeting. And then when nothing came of that, and I already thought we were close to the limit of survivability now, this was 1992, that we're not going to make it. And um, when that meeting failed to produce any meaningful results, and then I forget what number meeting we're on now um, uh, that, that continued to fail to produce, you know, radical results that we were looking for, um, that was a really big impact for me um, of hopelessness and dread and doom um, and and just grief and sadness that like really humanity we're not going to be able to pull this off. And so that 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 was really difficult to manage for me for I don't know about 20 years. Um and also during that time of um experiencing domestic violence at the same time. So those two things kind of put me over an edge in the early 90s. And um I remember I was in the in the hospital. Um and and i i had a psychologist who who thought 
I know it was a Rorschach test and some drawing tests, you know, these psychological tests. And um, I will never forget, she said I had a fixation with nature. And I just thought, what? <laughs> I just, like, what else is there? Like, what? what is not nature? And a fixation, like, um, I, I just, I, I lost total respect for psychology at that moment. I was like, are you kidding? Like, there's nothing you can ever help me with ever again. <laughs> um, I was like, what? A fixation with nature. I'll never forget that. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, I did not find any help at this moment in my life, at any of those moments in my life. Did, and then what help did come? Like you said, for 20 years, it was really hard. And yeah, wh where do we find you now? I think, um, I think learning more about trauma and understanding that and leading to the somatic world um, was really, um, it really important process for me. Um, and and largely i would um i would attribute that to my friend carol who um introduced me to a lot of things that i didn't really know about in practice so um yeah that's that's uh you know a friendship i i really value but that has been a really important part of my personal development um and from there, just finding the things that made sense, um, you know, I first heard of psychedelics being used in terms of treatment um, at the trauma conference that Bessel van der Kolk um, does every year um, and hearing about these trials of psychedelics. And um, I was like, hmm, uh, what does that, that mean? Makes you go, hmm. And so that that caught my attention i don't know 2012 or 13 or something um when we went to that conference and um so i wasn't sure what that meant i you know for me at that time it was all in the clinical trials and all that not knowing of all this other work outside of systems that was going on um and had been going on for a long time so uh, took me a while to get there and learn more about that that world, and so I think for me that, um, and I think of Terrence McKenna and the the way he described, you know, having a relationship with the mushroom, um, but the psilocybin work has been important for me. So for me, finding that somatic work, um, those practices, and and uh, developing that all those aspects of personal growth and learning about that whole part of myself. Um, and then having support from psilocybin has been really important for me. Um, yeah. And that those, those, that somatic doorways, I think so key. Yeah. I agree with you there. So, yeah. Well, obviously psilocybin and consciousness or, uh, well, consciousness, yes. And somatics is a consciousness hack for us. Uh, is there anything else? Yes. <laughs> Any other hacks that you want to mention? I think that's, that's really my, 
my main my main consciousness hack except outside of of um really focusing on my relationships uh in a different way like um deepening my relationships i mean that goes to a trippy place without any substances you know of um when you are are in relationships that really support um exploration and learning and um and that unconditional love space um like that that's just amazing if you can um get get there uh so i really value my relationships and and i i think that is has been an important consciousness hack uh for me <laughs> so those those two things um and that internal exploration of where all those things meet um in a somatic way yeah mm. Uh, I'd love to read a paragraph from All About Love by Bell Hooks, which I've been rereading. It seems to speak to what you're saying. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this book is just her exploring love in all different dimensions, you know, love in families, childhood, spirituality, an ethic of love, romantic relationships, death and love, uh, mutuality. So this is in the introduction. She says... Imagine how much easier it would be for us to learn how to love if we began with a shared definition. The word love is most often defined as a noun, yet all the most astute theorists of love acknowledge that we would all love better if we used it as a verb. I spent years searching for a meaningful definition of the word love and was deeply relieved when I found one in psychiatrist M. Scott Peck's classic self-help book, The Road Less Traveled, first published in 1978. Echoing the work of Eric Fromm, he defines love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Explaining further, he continues, love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely, both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. That's the end of the quote. And then she says, since the choice must be made to nurture growth, this definition counters the more widely accepted assumption that we love instinctually. Love that. And, you know, combined with the whole book of pleasure activism, of what does love mean in a community and over time, and do you have to be a perfect person to love <laughs> um, and that really these are just helping all of us grow, grow towards the light. Um, uh, that it is about, um, learning about our potential, um, as human beings and together. No, I, um, I have been asking myself this question, um, partly from the climate doom um, place, but um, again with, um, you know, the cancer diagnosis, um, 
And also just like years of just managing this suicidality, like, you know, the mortality, um, how much, how much control do I have over that at any given time? Um, but the question of, of who do I want to be when, when the shit goes down, right? Who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? And I get to decide that in every minute. Um, but that's been a really important question for me in terms of making life decisions and um, and just thinking about, you know, when you ask that question, you're confronted with what things mean to you. And what, what are your priorities in living? Um, you know, that that's what dying puts into perspective is your living, really, and what matters to you. So, um so all those things for me go together. Hmm. I'm really moved by that. Dying puts into perspective that you're living. I just, um, today was the last day of a conversation between Kimberly Ann Johnson, um, one of the people I've learned a lot from about um, somatics and trauma, and Stephen Jenkins, who who wrote, he's a, She's a doula, and I would call him a death doula. Uh, he works with end-of-life things. But um, at the beginning of this conversation, he asked the question. He said he was, he was with, doing a training with a bunch of healthcare providers, and he asked them, do you know that you're going to die? And, you know, the reaction, everybody rolls their eyes, of course we know we're going to die. He said, well, what would be the evidence that you knew you were going to die in how you live? And that was a pretty profound question, like in our culture or in our individual lives. How how does that show up that we know? Because in our culture, we avoid death and ideas of death and and dealing with death. Like it's just horrible how how unskilled and inadequate we are in this area. Um, you know, death is always a tragedy. It doesn't matter if you're 90 and you've lived a wonderful life, you know. Um or even 40, or, you know, being diagnosed with cancer at 59. Uh, you know, we're not going to live forever. And and we think of death as such a tragedy. Um, so I think the framing of that is so important. Um, but that the only reason that death matters is because it highlights how, you know, what's important about living. Otherwise, if we live forever, living would hardly even matter. You know, you could make all the mistakes you wanted and nothing would matter. So death is something that makes what we do in life matter. So I really, um, that was another question that really uh, impressed me was, what is the evidence in your life that you know you're going to die? I think that's a good question to leave folks with. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. No, just thank you for this uh, conversation without a roadmap. The conversation is the roadmap. Trying to live in moments. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the moments. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.